Hello, cyberspace, and welcome to episode six of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Angelo. So this episode will feature a little bit of our usual banter of technology, some paranormal stuff, some nostalgia stuff. So I figure uh, I will leave the floor largely to you for the first section tonight, which is technology, because you'd like to talk about uh, your personal lord and savior, uh, the Apple Corporation. I guess you can put it that way. Um, WWDC is coming up for us. It's in a week and a half. But when this episode comes out, I think it'll be today. So what is WWDC? It's the Worldwide Developers Conference. Uh, they have it once a year, and it's the big thing where Apple shows off its now four operating systems. So that would be iOS, macOS, watchOS, and tvOS. And all uh, four gets shown off, all the new things come out, the features, what's going to be new this year, how they're going to copy Google, what they're going to do uh, better than them, uh, how they're ahead, how they're behind everything under the sun and I'm so how gambling. many of these, so these these are live streamed across the world, right? So you can tune in. Yeah, so what I usually time. do on those days, I usually take my lunch at noon, but on those days I take my lunch at one, so I could live stream it to my iPad. And how many of these have you watched roughly? Oh, well, WWBC, I don't know when they started actually streaming this. It's been at least four or five years since since the iPhone pretty much took over the market in terms of uh, smartphones and they started selling millions of these. Uh, Steve Jobs was still alive, right? So I guess it must have been in 2010, I think, they or even 2009, they started live streaming them, but they were uh, they didn't work that well, I guess. I'd, we'd have to look it up um, off the top of my head. I don't know. Maybe uh, I could look it up while you're, you're talking because I don't like to listen to you. That, or if you know the answer, you can go ahead and tweet it as a double underscore density, plug, plug, plug. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Although they'll be tweeting us in a week and a half. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. So uh, you've sat through these. So how roughly how long are these presentations? They usually try to keep them to uh, under two hours. But uh, a few years ago in 2015, when they um, announced Apple Music, oh, boy, did that go on. You would have enjoyed it, though. Drake was there. Did you know he's a big Apple fanboy? I I believe that. I could definitely believe that. He was wearing an original uh, Six Colors Apple uh, jacket. You know, those old, uh, those leather jackets with the material sleeves? Yes. So yes. That's what, mid-90s style? He was wearing one of those. I'm just waiting for you to go on here because... Uh, okay, so uh, what else? So, so, okay, so usually, so roughly these are an hour... No, they're two hours. They have big things. It's two hours. Uh, so what were your favorite surprises of the past couple ones? The last year was great because they showed how uh, how crappy the Apple Watch had been and how much they made it better with uh, WatchOS 3. Uh, that was kind of interesting. That was one of the better uh, things of last year. They, um, they don't often release uh, actual hardware at uh, these things for example the the their best keynote ever was uh the one for the iphone and that wasn't at wwdc uh, they they do announce certain things more it's more developer centric right so obviously it's the worldwide developers conference so it's more of their nerdy things that they they announce there but i think since apple's become so big they pretty much uh announce a lot of stuff there and now this year they usually have a spring event and they had nothing this spring so this uh, this is their first keynote since October, I think, uh, when they announced uh, the... No, actually, no. I think it's their first keynote since the iPhone launch, if I'm not mistaken. That's a while ago. So um, 
they're they're ready to release some products and show some things to the world. There's a huge rumor going around now that um, a series speaker is going to be announced there, sort of like what we talked about last week. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be announced. They're probably going to announce some new iPads as well. The iPads right now are kind of old in terms of technology. The 13-inch iPad Pro is uh, two years old at this point, uh, or almost two years old in October. And the um, 9.7-inch iPad, the regular size iPad, I guess, the Pro, is... uh, a year and a half old, so they kind of have to come out with something new at this point. And people are holding their breath, waiting for a 10.5 inch iPad with uh, smaller bezels. That could be exciting. So it'd be basically a bigger screen and this and about the same form factor as the 9.7 inch one. And you personally, what are you hoping that they're going to announce? Like, if there's a, a wish list in your uh, heart of hearts, like what are you what are you hoping that Apple will, will come out of? A new iPad. I uh, I really want uh, an iPad. I haven't had I haven't bought an iPad myself since 2011. I have a, an iPad Mini. I think we've discussed this before that my wife gave me as a present, and I really like it. But uh, I can't use anybody else's iPad, or else my iPad feels really slow. So you have iPad envy. I do, but uh, I'm waiting. Uh, I I don't mind them taking their time because obviously the longer you wait for these things, the better. And the more money I can put aside for it. So, what don't you want to hear from them? What don't I want to hear from them? Yeah, like what? Like what useless announcement would, would cause to be like, oh, who who cares? Huh? Because for me, like I'm I'm far removed from the day to day goings on in Cupertino, right? So I don't really care all that much. Like I'll, I'll peruse news sites, but I, I don't continually keep up. It's only when I really need something that I'm I'm sort of forced to hunt down. Uh, facts and news and things like that in order to make a more informed purchase. So for me, I don't really have a horse in the, you know, new feature display, I guess. Yeah. And whereas I follow this, like some people follow sports, right? So I I could not care less about who's uh, doing anything in uh, any sort of sporting event. Uh, but this is this, like, so I guess WWC is like my Super Bowl. Except you're at work on an iPad alone in the middle of a, a Friday afternoon. Isn't that how everybody watches the Super Bowl? <laughs> Will you at least have apple-themed nachos? They'll be apple-themed apple slices. Double density. I would like them to announce uh, multiple audio streams on iOS. And the reason I say that, it would be nice to get a new iPad and then be able to record this podcast on it and still hear you on Hangouts at the same time which would be kind of interesting to be able to do that and record uh, uh, in a more mobile area, right? Because a truly portable solution to what's going on right now. And I think that is a smart move for them. I mean, the issues you've had going back to episode one with your uh, MIDI keyboard, right? Trying to get the Thunderbolt into the... Yeah, the lightning thing there. Yeah, the lightning, yeah, sorry. That uh, Yeah, and I don't know if that would fix it, but even uh, the audio worked fine. Like I said, it was just the, the MIDI, but it would be nice to be able to have to do exactly what we're doing now. Although I do like the setup on my Mac and it's working really great, especially with Audio Hijack and the way it's nice having a big giant screen to be able to uh, look at what we're talking about and uh, actually follow along and make sure everything's actually being recorded because uh, nothing would be worse than recording a 50 or hundred uh, or an hour uh, long po- podcast and getting to the end and realize nothing got recorded. Do you feel like perhaps Apple's doing this consciously, like trying to avoid having people use their iPads and iPhones in order to record, in order to steer them towards the more expensive desktops? Absolutely not, actually. Uh, and the reason I say that is uh, at the March, uh, I guess, was it 2016 or 20? Yeah, I guess March 2016 event where they released the iPad Pro, 
they explicitly mentioned podcasters and the whole um, the the camera three point the camera kit adapter, which is essentially a, a lightning to USB uh, plug. Where what I it's what I use to plug into my iPad. They announced that it's you can actually plug in lightning into it as well so it powers the ipad and they mentioned how it's a, a good solution for people that want to podcast uh the 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 usb camera adapter actually would allow you to plug a, a usb interface like i'm using now into my mac and you can just plug it into the ipad and at the same time power your ipad you were able to do that with the old camera adapter but you couldn't power the ipad with it now you can so you won't lose power and actually keep recording so they they actually gave a shout out to podcasters about this and the thing is, is you, you can't actually record two independent audio streams. As soon as something else starts playing on iOS, the active audio feed cuts out. Unlike on a Mac, where right now, like I said, I'm hearing you on, on Hangouts, but I'm also recording myself. So what you're seeing is perhaps a splitter uh, in the future or some kind of mini mixer would, would uh, make a lot of sense for the, the portable user. Well, it's, yeah, exactly. It's not even that. It's just being able to manipulate audio on, a, on an iPad like you can manipulate it on a Mac. Just imagine the possibilities, though. You could have your son call you on the one yelling at you and then your daughter calling you on another app and yelling at you at the same time. Be great. I actually uh, had a fun time putting them to bed tonight. My wife's out and uh, it was uh, it's always a lot of fun putting them to bed. It's interesting to see how, how they act, especially as they're getting older and uh, and they uh, they fight over things. We have, this is like a common theme in the show. My kids fighting. They actually don't fight that much. It's just, I guess, when I'm alone with them and mommy's not here to wrangle them in. But I feel like maybe the equation is son plus daughter plus technology equals problems. Yeah, maybe. But uh, and and so that brings us to um, something that happened this week. Uh, Monday was a day off. It was I was about to say Labor Day, but it wasn't Labor Day. What what is what's the March uh, the May? Uh... Well, it depends where you are, right? So if you're in English Canada, it's the Queen's birthday. And here in Quebec, it's Dollar Day or something? Yeah, <laughs> correct. Okay. Um, so we had the day off, and it was pouring rain, so we weren't going to go do any outside activities. So I, I finally decided after months of debating, I bought uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild on the Wii U. So I decided not to go spend hundreds of dollars on a Switch and get Breath of the Wild on that, even though apparently it runs a little bit better on there, and obviously it would be a fun new console. But I decided to just get it on the Wii U. And the beauty of it is now, I just went to the e-store, I, or the e-shop as it's called on the, uh, on the Wii U, and I downloaded it. It took about two hours because it's a huge game, and the Wii U is a little slow. Uh, but instead of not being able to go out because the stores were closed and having to buy a physical copy, I could just do it, let it download while we did some chores around the house. And then the reward for that was to play Zelda with the kids. And uh, it was kind of fun playing with them. It's, it's, it's fun to see the game I thought about when I was a kid reading the instruction manual. Remember those? How fun it was to read early Nintendo instruction manuals. So you're talking about the NES instruction manual for Legend of Zelda. Exactly. Exactly. It was full color. Um, I'll see if we can find the scan of it uh, online. There's a couple. I can, I can definitely find that. There's actually, um, I don't know the website, but there's one project in particular that's, that's aiming to preserve all of these old instruction manuals in the highest possible quality. And those, uh, especially the first party Nintendo instruction manuals were amazing. They were, they had little stories. There's stuff you found out in the manuals that obviously the, the, the actual game wasn't advanced enough to tell you. 
uh, you found a lot of certain things, uh, like names of characters that you never even saw in the game. I mean, you never saw the names of the characters of uh, from the Mario games or the Zelda games in the actual game. You read them in the manual. And the the actual artwork made me imagine Zelda how it should be, other than the, the little pixels on the screen. Although, I guess for 1986, it was it was quite advanced, right? Right. But so given that, like, given the fact that you just went on and on about instruction manuals, why did you choose to buy the uh, the electronic version of this? So games don't really come with instruction manuals anymore, even if you buy a box game. It basically comes with uh, a leaflet and nothing else because the instruction manuals in the game, uh, most games give you a tutorial as you play to figure out how to get through the game. So Zelda does that quite well. What's nice about this Zelda, I find it's not too handholdy. It kind of gives you a set of instructions what to do, but then it kind of just leaves you out in this world, and it's enormous. Uh, I don't know if you played Skyrim or know what Skyrim is. I definitely know what Skyrim is. All right. I, I... Sorry, Elder Scrolls Five colon Skyrim. Is it five? Yeah, I think it's five. Okay. Uh, see, I didn't know that. I just called it Skyrim. If you're not sure whether or not it is five, go ahead and tweet it as double <laughs> underscore density. Well, thank you. So that's the thing, right? We talk so much about so many things. I have no idea what your policy on video games is. Isn't that weird? I am a casual game player, but an avid game watcher. So you, you're on the Twitches? I'm on the, I was just on Twitch before we started recording. I was watching someone play the new Friday the 13th game that recently came out. And so the thing for me is that I don't want to invest myself necessarily in a, a service like Twitch lets me hop around and see what different video games look like and sort of how they play uh, with people who play a lot better than I could uh, given the time frame. I also don't have the hardware. I have one PS3 and I, uh, I'm not really interested in, um, in desktop gaming right now. I mean, I've dabbled in Steam and things like that, but there hasn't been a game that's grabbed me and made me want to play since the south park rpg a couple of years ago stick of truth and there's a whole there's a new one that uh that just came out it's not out yet it's not out but there's a new one coming out right yeah it's been delayed uh by 2.5 years at this point so yeah and what's the title again fractured but whole i think let's go with that one fractured but whole right see fractured but whole get it huh this is what i have to deal with here this is this is great i'm childish so that's coming out sometime in Hold on. Uh, October 2017, apparently. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's it. I don't know much about how you game and what you do, but so in, in my case, I I haven't really played too many games lately. I have a PS4 and I, I, I bought it and I kind of play and sometimes I get in. It's like fits and starts, right? I, I started playing Fallout 4 and I enjoyed that. I played uh, Just Cause 3, which is bonkers, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's basically a make-your-own-Michael-Bay movie type game. Okay. You're like just blowing things up. It's it, it, it has no substance to it, but it's a lot of fun. So, But Zelda has always been one of my favorite games. And it's kind of funny. This is the second Zelda game I buy that comes out on two consoles at the same time. One is a launch and one is basically the Lost Hurrah for the... the the console so i have twilight princess that i bought on the gamecube instead of getting a wii i never actually bought a wii uh, even though i'm i'd say of video game manufacturers nintendo's my favorite nintendo by far yeah is my is the most consistent for me so the only thing right now that would sway me to get a wii u or um not a wii u do not get a wii u at this point. <laughs> no 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 but i'm saying is like in theory is that uh, or a switch is mario maker and i know if i purchase that game 
I am done. Like you will not talk to me or see me for like a month. See, yeah. And I, I had that on my radar for so long and then I never ended up getting Mario Maker, but everybody says how great that game was. And, and that's the thing with the Wii U. There were so many games that didn't come out for it, meaning third-party games that people kind of wrote it off. But there's a handful, a good 12, 15 games on there that just make the system. If you have those 15 games, you're happy. Just some examples would be... Uh, Mario Maker for one. Uh, Splatoon. Splatoon. I didn't play that, but it's apparently fantastic. Mario Kart 8 is amazing. Yep. Uh, Super Mario 3D World is so much fun. Smash Brothers is great. Yoshi's Whirly World is a lot of fun. What's the? Is there a Kirby one for the Wii U? I think there's a Kirby. I, I that. So I remember there was a Kirby Wii game that I was really into. Oh yeah, that 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 was that was a lot of fun too. I, I remember. Was it Kirby's Canvas Curse, possibly? Yeah, that sounds about right. But I the, think that was DS. The thing for me is that the uh, the Switch now has a brand new name, whereas a lot of... And it sold uh, better f- during its first month of production than the Wii U did, right? Partially, I do believe, because of the name. That was one of the biggest blunders they ever made, was calling the Wii U the Wii U, because it just confused people. People thought it was just that controller for the Wii. Right. And it's not. It's a whole thing. And that... I have to say that that gamepad's a lot of fun. Like uh, past few nights, instead of playing it in the basement, I've been bringing the actual uh, Wii U gamepad upstairs and just playing on the couch upstairs, relaxing and uh, playing that way. And going back to Zelda, sorry, it started to make a point, and I completely lost track of that. That's that's the point of podcasting, though. Yeah, that's 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 the whole thing, right? So that's the the um, it's another game, and it's funny while it was downloading. I actually found Twilight Princess in a box because the chore we did while we waited for the game to download was the whole family helped clear out our storage room in the basement because we have an, we have a relatively large room in the basement that is was completely filled with all kinds of stuff. And uh, now there's so much space in there. It's great. I can like go dance in there if I really wanted to. Please uh, don't. We got, no, I won't. We got rid of some, a lot of baby stuff. We sold a few things, which has been a lot of fun selling stuff online. Uh, weird interactions with people. It's kind of awkward. Maybe that's something we can talk about next episode. Yeah, we can talk about uh, selling things online. I, I, after all these years, I finally started doing that. Uh, but So as we were waiting for that, I found um, Twilight Princess for the GameCube in a box. And I remember hearing that it's actually um, a collector's item because so few people actually bought it on the GameCube. Because the GameCube was another, I wouldn't say a Nintendo misstep, but it was another console that didn't do as well as its predecessor. Why do you think that is? It's because uh, the PS2 came out and ate its lunch. I mean, the PS2 came out first. The GameCube and Xbox came out around the same time. uh, And it just couldn't catch up to the momentum the PlayStation had. I also feel like the Mario titles at launch weren't as strong as Mario 64 or Super Mario were um, with the prior consoles, right? Oh no! Yeah, it had. Uh, well, there was no Mario at launch. I don't. I don't think it was uh, exactly. It didn't launch at Mario. It had. It was uh, Mario Sunshine, which was fine. It got brutally hard at a few points that I, I just gave up on it. Uh, but I also think it wasn't as a, a quote-unquote traditional Mario game as everyone else was hoping for. No, it wasn't. It was. It was. It was a bit weird because he had a jet pack or a, a water propulsion pack. It was really weird. And the reason I bought the GameCube was for Metroid Prime. And man, was that a good game. Uh, a lot better than Luigi's Mansion? Yes. But <laughs> I have to say, Luigi's Mansion on the 3DS is really great. That's a game oh. that uh, I spent a lot of time playing a couple of years ago on the 3DS. I believe that. Like Nintendo, I, they just make so many good things. 
when the last Zelda came out on the 3DS, Link Between Worlds, I think it was called. Yeah. I, I like I bought the special Zelda edition 3DS and with all the games that came out that year, who would have thought a 3DS game would have been by far my favorite, but that was a really good Zelda game. Well, I mean, it was basically linked to the past plus plus. I mean, what's the, what's there to hate about that? No, nothing. There's nothing to hate about that. And it was a bit of a, another, again, departure from Zelda where you don't have to go through different dungeons to get all the parts. You actually, the to get all the his weapons, you can actually rent weapons in that game, which is kind of a neat concept. And this one too, you kind of get everything you need within the first few hours. And then it kind of just sets you free in the world. The, the only thing stopping you is that when you're going to certain places, like I, you kind of can get lost in this game, right? Uh, and one of the fun things about it is that if you see somewhere, you can go there. As long as you have the, the stamina or enough hearts or good enough weapons, you can actually reach there. So all this to say that we ended up playing a lot of Zelda on the Monday. And uh, the kids were kind of freaking out. They they really enjoyed it. The best thing the best thing about that though is that you didn't have to get into your car and return the disc on the Tuesday morning, which is something I wanted to talk about in a segment I'd like to call things Angelo's kids will never get to experience, which is movie rental places. That's absolutely true. The last time we rented a movie, my wife and I, we weren't even living together, and we had just rented an, uh, it was a new movie that just came out on video called Batman Begins. Wow. Was it on video or DVD? On DVD, yeah. Okay. We were, we were only using VHS to record shows. Right. So that's, that's something that, you know, the, this generation going forward will never know because I spent a lot of my youth in, video, in um, movie rental places, both renting movies as well as video games, right? So we got a Super Nintendo one Christmas, and then a week later, my mom took us to the uh, Club International uh, on Verdun Avenue to go rent Super Nintendo video games. Yeah, I remember uh, renting games. I, I rented uh, Super Metroid, didn't finish it, and then I bought it. So I had to start all over because obviously you couldn't transfer your saves because they were all saved on the actual cart itself with a battery. Speaking of that, um, something that I was also interested in is that weird thing where you rent a video game with save states. So, you know, any RPG on the Super Nintendo or whatever, any cart based um, RPG, and then you see another person's file and they're far ahead of you. And so you're kind of debating whether or not to erase that to make room for your own. And then uh, sometimes you even decide to play that save state to see where it is. Yeah, that, so that made me think, okay, so you, did you, so you used to continue the game? I used to, well, I used to peer into the, the, the further save state to see where this person was, what kind of spells they had, what level their characters were at. So I was very interested um, in sort of seeing into the future without actually seeing into the future, right? Because now, if you want to see, uh, there are a thousand playthroughs for video games on YouTube, right? So you can kind of just sit down and watch someone play. Whereas back in the day, you didn't really have that luxury, right? So you kind of just, you, you, if you want to see forward, this rental cart that you had uh, kind of gave you the opportunity to do so. You, you brought up something that, and you know this about me, I've mentioned it before, uh, and this plays to my personality, that being... Um, lawful good if i was a dungeons and dragons character it made me feel terrible to actually go and look at those saved games i didn't want to touch them i felt they would like sully my experience and i would delete one and just start fresh without even looking at them does, does that surprise you uh it doesn't surprise me but I, I feel like maybe uh 
you don't necessarily have to automatically save over someone's save state if you want it either, right? I feel like given the limited amount of time that you had with a, a, a game, especially if it was a popular game that other people were planning or interested before you got back to it, I I found it interesting for to be able to go in and see sort of what the future looked like, right? Because, uh, for example, uh, a game later on, like uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night for PlayStation, you can go into GameFAQs.com and take a look and sort of get an idea of how to beat it, you know, and sort of what's in store in the future. Whereas for cartridge-based games, you didn't really have that luxury. So I thought it was a way to sort of uh, get a good look at what I might be in store for. Oh, I think you're right. I'm the one who was dumb and didn't do the right thing. <laughs> uh, I, there's no doubt about that. You You had the right way of doing things. I was just... It was just my my brain telling me, no, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. So did you, uh, what was the worst rental decision you'd ever made? Because I have two. Oh, it's so funny. You, you, okay, well, so I can see you're practicing your uh, remote viewing because that was exactly what I was going to say next is I vividly remember renting Dragon Warrior 2 and bringing it right back after like an hour or two realizing why the hell did I rent a really long JPR, uh, J, uh, JRPG. Yeah, wow. Okay, let me start that over. Why did I rent a really long JRPG? Even though I didn't know they were actually called that back then. It, it's one of the, I never even understood why they would l- allow you to rent that type of game for a day. It should be like a disclaimer on the box. It's like you have to take a seven day rental for this because or else you're not going to enjoy it. Because I, I played it and realized, what a mistake. Let me just go rent something else. And I went back and rented something else. I have no idea what I rented. I don't remember that. But I vividly remember renting D- uh, Dragon Warrior 2 on the NES and being really disappointed in myself. So your idea of video game rentals is the same as uh, the policy for airport parking. There should be a, lo- a short term and a long term. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I understand you. So for me, there were two and they were both on the Super Nintendo. So the first one, uh, it was an adaptation of the uh, cartoon James Bond Jr., which oh, if wow. you play it as I don't know, I was, I was probably six or seven, was a truly difficult, horrible game um, where the first uh, uh, level was you in a helicopter trying to ma- or make your way towards an end goal. And so I recently went on YouTube to watch a playthrough and I was nowhere near the end of that level as a six or seven year old. It was impossibly hard as a first level and it was very frustrating because um, the difficulty level was so high that anything could kill you at any point. And so uh, you'd have to sort of practice these lo- this level up until a space where you're able to to bypass all of the tricky parts and this was like a seven or eight minute level so as a six or seven year old it was very very frustrating sort of like the battle toads uh level with the speed bikes there oh yeah for sure that was a de- that was definitely a very very difficult level i never passed that uh, that level in that game and the second was equally frustrating to me so I'm, I'm beginning to see a pattern here it was an adaptation of the terminator 2 movie uh for super oh, nintendo God. and see. uh it was weird because you'd play through the first level and it's the biker bar where you get your clothing. And the second level is uh, this weird isometric um, racing game, but they don't tell you where you're going or you do. So automatically uh, you're on your motorcycle and you end up being bumped by all of these trucks and all of these vans and then you die. And so that was, that was very, very frustrating to me. Um, you know, even as an adult now, it, it kind of gets my, bu- my blood going a little bit. Even when you said, and then you die, you made me think of, uh, and then he was that that line from that that internet story, and then oh, but then who was phone? Fo- <laughs> <laughs> then, then who was phone Terminator? 
but yeah it was always such a grab bag which i think is really funny now that in hindsight so i don't know if you did this as a kid but i i read nintendo power egm you know and, and my friends and i would all get different magazines and, and trade them and, and read the stories and look at the stills which gave you very little to go on a lot of the time so what about you, Angela? Did you read video game magazines when you were younger? Or, you know, did, did you trade them with friends of yours? Yeah, so I have a, a long history with uh, with video game magazines. Uh, back to before Nintendo Power was actually... Nintendo Power was the, the Nintendo newsletter. I'm sure you can find the link to that somewhere. Uh, just look up uh, Nintendo Power before it was Nintendo Power. But um, Then who was Nintendo Power? Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, <laughs> why'd you do that to me? Uh, <laughs> but yes, I uh, I did subscribe to Nintendo Power. I remember getting my first issue. I came home from school and my dad was nice enough to have picked it up out, out of the mailbox and put it standing up on my desk in my room. And I walked in and I saw Mega Man staring at me. It was the uh, Mega Man 2 cover that could be also something you put up because uh, you should definitely look that up that's a classic uh, nintendo power cover um, that was one of my first issues i got it was uh, i guess a good year after it came out but uh, i remember seeing the nintendo newsletter after that uh in the late 80s early 90s i graduated to egm the first issue of egm i got was the one with uh of all things terminator 2 on the cover oh gosh uh and it comes full circle within a few minutes the worst. Uh, Did you read so in reading these magazines, were you ever tricked into renting or buying a video game that you then suitably regretted um, interacting with? Uh, absolutely, because back then the uh, it seems like the barrier to entry of becoming a games journalist was not very high, even though uh, these were printed magazines. And um, not to say anything, I guess I guess not not the journalists themselves, but they the the research wasn't really all that in there right they were all always the same thing that had like the rumors part the previews which always made the game sound absolutely incredible and then the reviews and egm actually had really good reviews right they they were uh, I, i'd say up there with one of the better uh, review teams where there were yeah i feel the- like it was egm and then game pro and then my favorite dark horse magazine of all time game fan i don't know if you ever read it an yeah issue i read game a few fan. game fans it was later it was Game fans kind of came out in the period where I didn't really play many games. Um, I didn't between uh, the SNES and the PlayStation. I didn't really touch games too much. I wasn't uh, into it until I guess '98 when I got a the first PlayStation. Uh, so it was a good three years of not doing anything. Like I, I did play a bit of the um, the N64, but not much. And I only played because my nephew had that game, the right. the, the N64. So I, I I was sort of speaking about GameFan because uh, there is a crazy uh, thread on a message board of, of former GameFan employees and all the shenanigans and things that they went through. And I'm going to link that in the show notes. And it's this absolutely insane thing where they... Uh, so, for example, whenever they got paid, they had to race to the bank in order to cash their checks because there was never enough money in the owner's account. The, wow. uh, the amount of drugs that they did while reviewing games or laying things out or writing reviews was insane. So it was a lot of fun to have the curtain pulled back all these years later with all of these um, older issues. So I stopped gaming at the end of the PS1 pretty much. Um, so I had gone from Super Nintendo to Nintendo 64 and then um, Nintendo 64 towards the end of the first uh playstation's uh life cycle and then i, I kind of dropped off there so the game fans that i were reading were the intro to nintendo 64 
Okay, so yeah, so you you had a so I had a very different thing, right? I stopped. I started with the ColecoVision Atom, of all things, because I was born way before you. Uh, and then I got an I, my friend, the na- my neighbor got an NES, in I guess '86, and we got Zelda. He got Zelda right away, and we played that a lot, Zelda Two. And then I got an NES in 1989 for my birthday. I guess that was my 12th birthday. With uh, my first NES game was Master Blaster. Oh, that's a really fun game. That's an amazing game, actually. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I got a Genesis. Because, you know, Genesis, Genesis with Nintendo, or what Genesis... <laughs> Genesis does with Nintendo. Yeah. I don't even know my sayings anymore. Um, but that was great. Uh, but then I realized the, the SNES had really good games because I still... My heart was still was, was, was with Nintendo, even though I did like uh, Sonic and stuff. Uh, Nintendo made really good... There's some really crappy games on the Genesis as well. Like, like Zelda... Uh, Zelda uh, Sega sort of just threw stuff out there. Like Altered Beast, if it wasn't in the arcade where it was a quarter-eating machine, uh, with Unlimited Continuous, it was pretty much a joke, right, that game? Well, also graphically it was a joke compared to its arcade counterpart. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they, they used to tout it as an arcade 16-bit thing. I remember the first time I saw the Genesis was in the constru- Consumer's Distributing Catalog. I was wondering what the hell it was. My friend had the TurboGrafx-16. That was kind of cool. Very expensive, though, even for its time. Yeah, and it had a weird... The weird game cards were kind of bizarre. Yeah, uh, so it was either CDs or carts, depending on what the game was. There were very few CDs, though, and nobody bought the CD player. The CD player was really expensive. Yeah, and that's why each game is pretty much worth almost $200 there right now on the secondary market. Yeah, because nobody bought them. And then, uh, yeah, there was the, the SNES, though. I That's probably my favorite system, by far. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you on that one. And I think that... Um, we uh, were, so I guess your parents were supportive in your video gaming habits. Yeah, I mean, it did take a lot for me to get a video game, though. They weren't just going to buy me a game every 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 time. It was always like a birthday present, Christmas present. Uh, I do remember. Uh, I don't know if this is a, a created memory, sort of like uh, a lot of people do with a lot of things, but I remember uh, bugging my dad to go get Super Mario Brothers three. But he just couldn't. Fi- he wasn't finishing mowing the damn lawn. Uh, but we we drove to Toys R Us, took that little ticket from the, the the thing, and went to paid for it, and then went to the guy behind the booth who gave me my Super Mario Brothers three, and then I read the instruction manual on the way home, and then got to play for a bit. And that was uh, that's a vivid memory of uh, buying a game. That and then another game I remember clearly buying and overpaying for was Outrun on the Genesis. Oof. That, that game cost $90. Games were so expensive back then. $90 in 1993 is a lot of money. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, so that's... And then after I entered my uh, my blue period when I didn't play any games. Uh, but then I got a PlayStation. I was one of the first people... Uh, I was one of the lucky few who got a, a PS2 the day it came out and actually came out on my birthday. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get it because I worked at a store that sold them. So this seems like a recurring theme where you get things on the day they come out. Uh, it's it's more of a remembering that when that does happen because I often don't get things the day they come out. But uh, the PlayStation was an exception. I spent a lot of money on that stupid thing. I should have, if I could go back to two thousand, I would say, you know, the money you're spending on that PlayStation, buy Apple stock. <laughs> it was like four bucks. I, I do enjoy how you would have told your younger self to be fiscally responsible. I really would. Like, I, I, I consider myself fiscally responsible now, 
but uh, back then I was not. But I didn't really need to be, right? I left. I, I lived at home. I had a had a job that all the the proceeds just went to fuel my video games at that point. I bought like everything for the PS2. Oh yeah, be, before that though, I bought the I bought the Dreamcast uh, because it was heavily discounted. It was like fifty dollars at one point. Wow. Okay. And what were your favorite games on there? Uh, Soul Calibur was fantastic. Did you play any Crazy Taxi? That was one of my favorites. I loved Crazy Taxi as well. That was a really good game too. There's so many. The, it's so fun to go down memory lane. And that's another, uh, I, I found my uh, stash of uh, Dreamcast games too when we cleaned out that back room. And uh, the Dreamcast was funny because the games were easily pirated. And uh, back then uh, I had no qualms about uh, my friends giving me a bunch of games. So you used to trade off with each other? Well, I had a friend of mine uh, who basically, uh, I think he had like every game burned and he would just, he would, he didn't mind giving them away. He's just like, just buy me the discs you want me to put them on and I'll give them to you. Did you ever play Seaman? I actually never played Seaman. That was the one where you can talk to somebody, right? Yeah, you could talk to the, the, the weird sea creature on screen a lot. Sega's always done weird stuff with their peripherals, haven't they? Yeah, it's always been this strange kind of... Um... Seaman in particular was was an odd one, I, and I'll we'll throw a link down to the uh, video of a playthrough or something. But yeah, it's it's definitely one of these weird games. Like, um, it's almost analogous to I used to play Endless Ocean for the Wii, which had sort of like missions, but it was a lot more fun to just swim around for hours discovering fish for no reason. Oh, that's fun. So this this comes back to Zelda Breath of the Wild. I played while the I was home today because of some work being done on the house and. Uh, I basically spent the whole time just uh, moving around Zelda the world and just enjoying what it looks like, looking at fish, uh, catching butterflies and lizards and frogs, because then you cook them and make elixirs out of them. Uh, but uh, climbing mountains, it's its just a beautiful game, even on the Wii U. So what you're saying is that you can see yourself playing this all the way through till whenever it ends. Oh, yeah. I, I, the Zelda games, I... I I don't think I've ever given up on a Zelda game that I've started. I haven't played all of them, though, I have to say. I, I, I never played uh, Skyward Sword because I didn't have a, a Wii, and I haven't bought it on the Wii U, actually. But I did um, I did play through most of them. I played through the two on the GameCube. I really enjoyed those quite a bit, and I played on the ones uh, the ones on the DS and the 3DS. And, uh, so, and also Majora's Mask and Ocarina of Time. I, okay, I never played those two. So basically what you're saying is that you've played through half of the uh, Zelda offerings out there and you've beaten them. So you are the Iron Man of Zelda games with an asterisk and the asterisk being you've only played half of them. Well, uh, I I haven't played arguably the one that people say is the best one. Have you played the Game Boy one? Which Game Boy one? The first first one. No. Okay. So I'm beginning to see a pattern here where you, you, sir, are a charlatan of Zelda games. That's not true. Come on. You, you 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 literally said I've beaten every Zelda game I've no, played, I, but then I, you've only played I, like four. Well, no, I've played every, I've beaten every one I've played. So I played Zelda 1, Zelda 2. I don't know, I, maybe I didn't beat Zelda Zelda two. 8, Zelda 9. You never, <laughs> you never beat, you, you've never been linked to the past before. Really? No, that's Zelda, no, that's Zelda 3. Oh, right. You're saying Zelda 2, right? The Zelda 2 was the weird step, evil stepchild uh, of, uh, of the Zelda right. franchise. Right, at the but, end you have to fight a shadow version of yourself. And Zelda 2 is actually a direct sequel, whereas the other Zeldas are not. 
The timeline for Zelda is the most crazy thing out there in video games. There's a great book by uh, Dark Horse, actually, that kind of breaks down the mythology a lot of it. And it's really, really cool. And then it gets into all the video games. And I, I read it a little while ago. And it's super fun. Is that so the, the Hyrule Companion? DM exactly, yeah. And there's a new one out there, too, that's a red cover. And I can't remember what its name is. But if you're interested in learning more about Zelda, that's definitely a great place to start if you're a little confused about where the timeline goes, as well as which timeline these games fall into, which is another thing entirely. Well, I actually have a copy of it on my Wii U because a mutual friend of ours gave me the, her um, her download code for it because she had the actual book and she didn't need it, so she gave it to me. So you should read it. I should. It's just weird reading on a Wii U. You should read all about all of the games that you never actually uh, played or beat. Yeah, thanks. You're mean. Double Density presents the sounds of your youth. Welcome back to the Double Density Podcast, and I recently uh, shared a video with you, Angelo, of one of my heroes. Um, You know, I don't actually have heroes, but if you were to tell me, Brian, please list off the people you admire, he'd be high on the list, Uh, and that man would be uh, Snake Plissken himself, Kurt Russell. I was about to say, is it Snake Plissken? Yeah. (laughs) And so actor Kurt Russell was recently on a BBC One program because he's in the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And the host actually dug up some really interesting information in that Kurt Russell was uh, one of the civilian pilots who actually made a report on the 1997 Phoenix Lights. So I watched the video and I I wasn't quite sure of why they were bringing that up and how it... Did he know ahead of time? Like, had he figured out that Kurt Russell was that pilot? Or did Kurt Russell, like, reveal it on there because that's what they were talking about? And a lot of these instances, what happens is that um, some research is done. And I guess uh, this was a fun fact to bring up uh, during the show. So, you know, so some of the pre-show researching done, uh, Kurt or someone representing Kurt probably let that one drop. So it was a lot of uh, a researcher on the show's end uh, picking up the pieces and informing the host of this, uh, getting their questions ready. That's really it was it was really well done how they how they kind of talked about it and revealed slowly that he was a pilot that this uh, I guess called in the UFO that night. And that is literally a UFO as an unknown flying object, not the classical term of flying sasha UFO, but a little uh, UFO, which I think is an important distinction to make in the way that he explains himself. Right. Yeah, he sounded really cogent and understanding about what he's talking about. And that it's when people see lights in the sky that they can't explain or a physical object they can't explain, it's a UFO. It's exactly that. It's an unidentified flying object. The problem now is that that word uh, actually means something else and that it's, as soon as they hear it, it's, it's an alien. It's nothing. It's, it's from outer space. It's not from Earth or whatever. But it's not. It's, it's what Kurt Russell said he saw. He didn't know what it was. It was kind of almost in the way of the plane, right? He made it sound like it was right over the runway. Yeah, he was saying that these, there are these six lights that were kind of in the way, and he didn't know what to do, and the radar operator wasn't picking up these lights on their radar. And do you, they didn't really go into this in the video, but do you think it was the flares, that uh, the famous flares from that night, or was that at a different time? I absolutely believe it was, it was the flares, because... Uh, 
the way that the story was construed um, on the program, it sounded as though that all of these details were matching up, especially at the end when uh, Kurt was watching years later. Um, I, I guess his wife, Goldie, was watching um, some kind of report, and he sort of slowly pieced together that he had been a part of that incident uh, after having watched this special. And and that's the interesting thing with the whole Phoenix Lights um, story is that those that part of it now is established, right? But it's it's the stuff that happened before that people are kind of not sure. Like even uh, true UFO believers admit, if that's the right word, that the part, the thing that was filmed so clearly is clearly flares from a U- U.S. Army base, right? Everybody pretty much agrees on that. It's what happened before where the debate happens in that people think it was this triangular giant craft that blocked out the stars, right? Right. The the whole Phoenix Lights thing is it's kind of like played out at this point, but it's uh it's it's really fun to hear that a celebrity, somebody everybody knows who's now in a movie about space, saw something that a lot of people misconstrue as an alien aircraft. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's been a long history of this sort of thing, right, where things are easily uh, explainable and then um, people go looking for more so for example you know most famously I guess would be Project Blue Book which is a compendium of um, r- reporting sightings to the US government from 1952 to 1970 and so there were uh, 12,618 reports uh, during that time frame during those 18 years and of that uh, 718 of them could not be clearly identified but quote unquote, to quote them uh, did not defy the science or technology of the time so of 12,618, uh, less than 10% of them uh, were uh, not clearly identifiable, but probably had a really good uh, reason behind them. And that, that's, that's pretty much the common thing, right? 5 to 10% of things that people uh, admit seeing are the ones that don't become identified, and they just remain unidentified. And a lot of people like to put on other meaning to that making them think that it's something crazy but it's usually probably just military aircraft that they can't describe or um, is classified or anything like that it's never anything that uh, like they say defies the science of the time Um, the problem is, is that a lot of these people that witness it think it does right they think it takes off super fast basically because of the way they they perceive it but uh, or an angle that they view it at but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something out, out of this world right i think the most um uh infamous of these things would be uh the roswell crash i guess of 1947 yeah because then finally after what 50 years the government uh, or was it 40 years they uh declassified what was called project mogul now of course even though they declassified it and said it was exactly that, and that's why they they covered it up, so to speak, people weren't satisfied, right? The ones that want to believe that there were bodies recovered from an alien craft that had funny markings on it and all that will not believe 
that it's Project Mogul, whether that's the truth or not. That is the one incident which I'm willing to sort of give any leeway to alternate theories beyond Project Mogul because of the fact that the government itself reversed itself on what it actually recovered um, in early July 1947. So to that, I feel like the flip-flopping a lot of the time does create a problematic uh, narrative. Um, and I think that's the most famous example of all of these incidents. And so in that instance, I'm willing to sort of believe that maybe there was stuff beyond Project Mogul that they still cannot talk about necessarily or don't want to talk about or divulge, and I, I get that. But the majority of the time, a lot of these um, sightings are really just um, different optical illusions or uh, the number of people who report things like shooting stars as UFOs is incredible. Well, uh, so in preparation for today, uh, as I was, uh, as I mentioned, there was work being done in my house. So there's people, uh, there were roofers here. So I was waiting for them to get done so I could go talk to them and, and see what was up. Uh, I had a few minutes to kill and I put on a show uh, on Netflix called uh, Unsealed Alien Files. And uh, it's pretty terrible. It's really low budget and uh, it's all full of true believers and it's really cheesily made. It's it's not self-aware at all. I, I can't even describe it. Anyway, they had a thing talking about how some there was um, a truck with what seemed like a UFO on its flatbed going through town. And all these people were calling in saying, it looks like a spaceship. I saw, I saw a spaceship. And they had actual 911 calls of people reporting this spaceship. It ended up being an actual uh, experimental drone from the U.S. military. But it just sh- goes to show how quickly stuff escalates when people don't understand the thing they're seeing. Uh, it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen a blimp in the sky. I have. You don't see blimps that often. And every time I see one, it takes me a few seconds to recognize what it is. So you can only imagine when, if you if you happen to see like a stealth fighter or a stealth bomber fly over for whatever reason, not that we'd see that here because that would be a major problem if we saw that because uh, we don't have stealth bombers in Canada, right? It would be a strange thing to see because your mind's not u- used to seeing that. And those things look really alien, right? so to speak. I keep saying right. Uh, those things look really alien. And I mean, sort of pursuant to that, um, look at the SR-71 Blackbird uh, um, military aircraft, right? So, you know, this was created in the mid-60s and its shape was very odd and it did make a lot of noise. And just like the U-2 spy plane, you know, odd tech that was tested out on U.S. grounds um, before being deployed into um other regions of the world and a lot of people reported these two specific airplanes as aliens because of the way that they moved and the fact that they weren't conventional um in their approach and in their sounds well uh the episode of that show i was talking about that i watched they mentioned that uh, aircraft and they attribute what it was able to do to alien technology discovered at roswell Oh, so my theory from a couple of episodes still exists. Yeah, the, the Philip Corso, is that his name? He wrote yeah, the book on Yeah, Philip that. J. Corso, The Day After Roswell, I think. Yeah, so they he talked about how that uh, was taken from there. The Kevlar was invented from that, a uh, whole bunch of stuff. And you've talked about this before. It's, it's something that you, you actually really like to talk about. I think it's fun to talk about, but I also think the funny thing, too, is that um, I think that uh, something that we all need uh, to uh, uh, not necessarily pay attention to, remember, but the idea that uh, a lot of these people like Philip J. Corso get into fights with other UFO researchers about things like Roswell. That that really entertains me, actually, when, when those people start fighting about 
one ridiculous theory over another. Uh, I think this happens with the MJ-12 documents where a lot of uh, UFO researchers don't believe they're real, but a few of them are adamant about it. So Stan Friedman at one point did believe that those were authentic documents. I whereas, he still did. Um, Kevin J. Randall doesn't believe that they are. So one of the guys who was concentrated on Roswell does not believe that those are um, actual uh, verifiable documents. Yeah, and Staten Friedman, I think, still does. Yeah, he still does, and he still he still asserts that. And speaking of Philip J. Corso, uh, your friend and mine, Dr. Stephen Greer, posthumously, so this came out a couple of years ago, I don't know if you know this, claimed that Corso met extraterrestrials. Oh, that's new. So I love the idea of taking the names of the dead and associating them uh, with things that you obviously cannot prove because they're dead. And, oh, okay, so he has no proof of this. That's a shocker. No, he just brought this up during the middle of a talk. Yeah, okay, so it's fine. And it's funny that Philip J. Corso, in his own words, never thought to mention, you know, meeting aliens uh, during the course of his investigations and travels. Look, that was not as important as the uh, SR-71 Blackbird. Clearly not. But, you know, it's and it's it's funny to sort of, like, pay attention to the squabbling. So, for example, I don't know if you heard about this one. So, researcher Nick Redford thinks that Roswell was a crashed Japanese balloon filled with prisoners. Really? When did he mention this? I like Nick, I like Nick Redford. So, this is, like, a new one now that he's mentioned. Oh, I think, yeah. Okay, I, I think I downloaded a, a show about that recently. I haven't listened to it yet. I, I, like, I like that guy, though. He's fun. He writes a lot of books. He's, he's fun, like but he's also kind machine. of crazy. I I don't I don't know if he's actually crazy. I think he just or he plays a persona. Yeah, he he likes I think he 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 likes this stuff. I think he believes it more than we do. Um but he really likes this stuff because a lot I haven't read any of his books, okay, to be honest, but I've seen a lot of his books on online. They're there but like he's all over the place, right? He doesn't just concentrate on right. one part of the the paranormal. He's like into everything he just throws everything at the wall well he does things like cryptozoology and ufology and you know so he does things about things like bigfoot and the men in black and you know um roswell and he was in an episode of uh, of that penn and teller show bullshit yes but we're not allowed to saying that on the air oh it's the name of a, a title we can say that that's fine. I guess you might have to bleep it but yeah i agree that he i feel like he's one of those people who has a niche that he exploits uh, to a certain amount of acclaim, I mean, he's he's doing what he's doing in order to keep living, right? So he writes a lot of books. He's, if anything, he, I haven't read them, so I have no idea how well edited they are, how well written they are, because a lot of times in that space, there are a lot of self-published books, and they're pretty <laughs> terrible. Uh, a uh, lot of vanity publishing that happens. I have a few. I have a couple of books that are not self-published, and one of the more famous uh, UFO books. I kind of uh, put it up on my Kindle again yesterday, or my iPad Kindle app. Um, back to technology there. Uh, is the um the that Leslie uh that Leslie Keen uh I think she pronounced her name Kane Leslie Kane book uh, and funny enough I had forgotten about this but the forward of the book is by none other than John Podesta so the man behind Pizzagate and all the uh, his trouble with email passwords right so the man who is infamous for creating and maintaining Pizzagate. Uh, wrote the forge of this book. And I didn't realize that uh, the guy who ran the Hillary campaign was uh, such a huge proponent of um, ex- uh, exposure. <laughs> <laughs> of disclosure. I mean, it is, it is exposure for a certain kind after a while, right? I so. guess. But he was, uh, when he was in the, in the White House, uh, 
with I guess he was there with Clinton and Obama, right? Uh, I think yeah, I think both. Yeah, he was uh, he was really looking into this, but just to think if somebody who worked in in so close to the highest level of office in the U.S. doesn't know if uh, the U.S. has any UFOs hidden away somewhere. Does that does that mean there aren't any, or is it that well kept of a secret? Even though secrets seem to be really hard to keep these days, so tangential, in the US. tangential to this, right? So uh, take former U.S. President Jimmy Carter. So during, you know, Jimmy Carter is one of the few US, uh, U.S. presidents to go on record saying he had seen a UFO, he had a UFO incident. And during the campaign trail, he said, when I get into power, I will do all that I can in order to disclose and divulge everything having to do with extraterrestrial life. As soon as he gets into power and he's questioned about it, uh, as he ascends to the office of the president, he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. The, so what does that mean? Does it mean that he felt that it would make him look less presidential or is it mean that he did find something out and he really doesn't want to tell people because it's worse than he thought it was going to be. So I am of three minds, not only two, but three. So it's the first you mentioned either any sort of talking about UFOs uh, is equated to fluff and therefore not presidential. Uh, The second scenario is that he himself believes in these things and is, he has revealed before him the horrors and the unspeakable truth um, hidden behind closed doors and he cannot bring this to the American people properly or thirdly there's nothing there and there's nothing to say and he uh, looks like a fool if he turns around and says there's nothing I think probably it's number three in my heart of hearts I wish it were number two but I'm going with number three on this one <laughs> yeah uh, do you have a favorite uh, book on ufology the the Leslie Kane book was actually quite good um, she does take a few shots at people like us that don't really believe too much into this um, and a lot of the book has to do with first-hand accounts uh, from aircraft pilots, generals, all kinds of different people. And the thing with accounts like that is that you're still dealing with the human brain. And with all its own fallibility it has and all the mistakes we can make, it's still regular people. Uh, one of the cases, I can't remember if they discussed in the book, but the, 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 the Rendlesham Forest case, that's a famous one. I think we could devote a whole episode to that. But that case has a lot of problems, especially stuff that came out after. I think that Nick Pope actually put out a book about that two years ago. And Nick Pope's another one. Uh, we're we're kind of name dropping a lot tonight. And I guess maybe <laughs> one of these days we'll do a whole episode about the personalities in ufology. Yeah. So he put out a book in 2014 called Encounter in Rendlesham Forest. And yeah, that, that, that whole thing I think could be easily explained, but... Uh... I, uh, I, I, you get a lot of people angry when you say that. So let's not say that. Right. Okay. So you, that's your choice for books. For me, there's two different ones. Uh, one is mostly for the quote unquote lulls, and the other one is actually um, factually interesting. So the first one is Jim Mars's Alien Agenda, where Jim Mars just basically throws Jim Mars so cheese everything. Uh, he can and sees what sticks. So he talks about, you know, all these different kinds of UFOs and the Chupacabras and 2012 and all this thing because the book was written in the mid-90s. So he throws out kind of a whole smorgasbord of uh, paranormal occurrences under the umbrella of, like, uh, aliens are part of everything um, that I mention. And so it's kind of interesting and fun to read all of these different things um, being propagated. And, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, 
you know, 20 years later, it's fun to read and be like, well, he was wrong about all of this. And then for me, the one that I actually think is really interesting is a book by Annie Jacobson that was put out in 2012 called Area 51, an uh, an uncensored history of Americans, uh, America's top secret military base, which actually factually describes what happens there and uh, demystifies a lot of the alien angle with, you know, this is a testing facility. Of course, top secret things happen and this is why they happen. And that's why a lot of the reports that you see in the area don't actually uh, correlate to alien aircraft when you consider you know things like the sr-71 and the ut spy plane yeah that makes a lot of sense i, I like when people write things that are grounded in reality and, and that's my criticism of the the leslie kane book is that she's a little uh, woo in her own right uh, i saw her on colbert when the book came out um, pre uh pre late show colbert was more uh, on uh, the Col- the colbert report uh, and it was it was pretty funny to see their interaction. I I, I just looked her up on on Google, and there are people uh, also search for Nick Pope is there, uh, Alan Clemens, who I don't know who that is, but next to those two, Tom DeLong. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could go on and on about former Blink Winnie Two or Tom DeLong, but I will I I will reserve that for another episode. Yeah, and, and the reason I can remember the title of the. Um, the Leslie Kane book is because it's a pretty boring title. It's UFOs. Generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. Oh, it sounds more like a, a leather-bound report than an actual book almost, right? So in summation, Kurt Russell, keep checking the skies. Right, Angelo? Yeah, I, I like to look at the sky. It's pretty, but I never saw UFO. Have you seen a shooting star, though? I have. Actually, I've seen um at uh, the last music festival I went to while the... Uh, was it Smashing Pumpkins were playing or Our Lady Peace? One of the other was playing. Are you talking about one of the somersaults over here? Yeah, somersault. I saw a fireball, like a, a meteor like breaking up. It was really cool. Not a UFO, though. Not a UFO, though. Yeah, no, I've never seen a UFO, but I've seen, uh, I've seen a fireball a few times, actually. It's kind of cool to see that in the sky. So we're both at zero. So by the end of the year, I hope we both have a, a UFO incident, perhaps even together. Maybe. We keep we keep talking about this. We'll see what happens, huh? Huh? I'll I'll see you on your back deck. All right. Oh, that sounds wrong. <laughs> Double density. Welcome back to the Double Density podcast, and this is the end of episode six. So we've been at this for a month now, Angela. How do you feel about the podcasting lifestyle? So I think we've been doing great with these episodes. We're we're kind of coming into our own with our format, trying to figure out where we're going with this. But we're we're settling in on something that works with our tech talk and our nostalgic look backs and are talking about the paranormal. And as always, if you've enjoyed hearing us talk about these things, we'd love to hear from you. You can hit us up uh, on Twitter. Uh, so that's at uh, double underscore a density. And you can also search for us on Facebook, either by typing in double density or facebook.com slash double density podcast. One word. We're also on an Instagram at double density podcast one word and angelo could you do us a favor and have your wife give us a report card of our progress i'll ask her i don't know if she listened to the latest episode yet or the episode before that she is a very busy person i don't think the um kids in her classroom would appreciate her listening to podcasts as she works like uh i do but you you never know you never know is what you're saying here i will definitely ask her she's she's actually enjoying the show she thinks you're you do a really great job and I think you're progressing uh, astoundingly well. I would give you a, a B plus or A minus just to have you work on it some more. Just because, not even uh, due to anything factual. Well, well, you're really sweet, Brian. Thank you. So tune in next week as we discuss Bigfoot fact or delicious meal. 
Mm-hmm. This has been episode six of the Double Density Podcast, and you should tune in next week. See ya. Oh, bye.